is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for an American classic science fiction TV series that set the standard for all others that would come after it. Here's Jesse. The Twilight Zone is some of the best science fiction ever written. Created, produced, and narrated by Rod Serling, the series was shot in black and white for 156 episodes between 1959 and 1964. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At a time when television viewers were familiar with standards like Leave it to Beaver, The Lone Ranger, and I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone was a dark psychological thriller mixing fantasy with suspense in the dark hours of the night. My name is Talking Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talkie Tina, and I don't think I like you. My name is Talkie Tina, and I think I could even hate you. After graduating high school in 1943, Rod Serling began his military career, serving in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. Nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. It influenced much of his writing. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me, because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected. We, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. He was face to face with death every day and he used the unpredictability of death in his writing. I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves, certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Throughout the 1950s, Rod Serling established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He was also famous for criticizing the motives of other television writers at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer, are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950, earning $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the winter of 52, he gave up the security of his paying job to take a chance at freelance television writing. He dropped everything and moved his wife and kids to New York. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati 
television station as a staff writer, which is a particularly dreamless occupation composed of doing commercials. As I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700, which is hardly even grocery money. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. When television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West. The same companies who sponsored the shows were often involved in editing and censoring the programs as they saw fit in order to protect their brands from what they considered to be controversial subject matter, situations, or competing product placement. And now, Mr. Serling. This cigarette gives all the advantages of extra length and much more. The great taste of 21 vintage tobaccos grown mild, aged mild, and blended. Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors found something they didn't like. He soon realized that the only way to mitigate such drastic sponsor influence was to create his own show. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge. Because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it. I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years. And the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. Serling was demanding a new kind of relationship with the advertiser. One that protected both the integrity of the program and the dollar of the advertiser. Rod Serling felt so strongly about protecting his content that he produced videos for companies that were interested in buying time on his show. He was making it clear that he was in charge and that content was king. You gentlemen, of course, know how to push a product. That essentially is your job. My presence here is for much the same purpose, simply to push a product. To acquaint you with an entertainment product which we hope and which we rather expect will make your product pushing that much easier. What you're about to see, gentlemen, is a series called The Twilight Zone. We think it's a rather special kind of series. Essentially, people watch television to get entertained. And the keynote of this series, the thing we're concerned with, the thing we're aiming for, the thing we're working toward is entertainment. This is a series for the storyteller, because it's our thinking that an audience will always sit still and listen and watch a well-told story. When we return, the story of the Twilight Zone in Rod Serling continues right here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And by the way, go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we return to the story of Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Here's Jesse. When Serling submitted a script called The Time Element to CBS as the pilot for The Twilight Zone, CBS used the script for another show, The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, in 1958. Westinghouse, first with the future, presents The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're going to see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. This would have been the original premiere episode of The Twilight Zone. The story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor decides to visit psychiatrist. Can you tell me in one simple statement whether or not I'm off my rocker? Without dragging in Sigmund Freud and a lot of medical school English, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I can try. Well, I keep having this dream. I've, I've had it, I don't know, five or six times now. What sort of dream? A real one. Did you ever have any wacky dreams that seemed real? Oh, sure. I guess we all have. But have they happened over and over again? Recurred, same dream. The same dream, identical, it doesn't change. The twist ending reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor and that the psychiatrist was actually the one having the vivid dreams. Yes, sir? We're up and on the rocks. Something wrong? Uh, no. Who's the guy in the picture? Oh, him? No, the, uh, the other picture. Oh, that's Pete Jensen. He used to tend by here. No? Jensen? No. Just look familiar, that's all. Where is he now? He's dead. He was killed at Pearl Harbor. The episode received so much positive fan response that CBS greenlit The Twilight Zone which officially premiered the night of October 2nd, 1959. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the Twilight Zone. A man suffering from amnesia wanders through a small town, desperately searching for people until it drives him mad. Please, somebody help me. Somebody's looking at me. Somebody's watching me. Help me, please. Help me. Help me. Help me. Unaware that he's part of a secret military experiment gone terribly wrong. What happened to him is that he cracked. Delusions of some kind, we assume. But let me tell you all something, gentlemen. If any one of you were confined in a box five feet square for two and a half weeks, all by your lonesome without hearing a human voice other than your own, I'll give you especially good odds that your imagination would run away with you too. 
For Rod Serling, the horrors that he experienced in World War II were always a motivating factor when it came to writing scripts. His ideas, however, came from a different place. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue, in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. And the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. From a series of student talks recorded at Ithaca College in 1972, Rod Serling shared his philosophies on writing and storytelling. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites, and, and if it doesn't satisfy, uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in, in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must, have, you must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do. The Twilight Zone won two Emmys and a Golden Globe, but even though the show had loyal fans, ratings were down. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling, he was done with the show. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its cancellation sold the rights to CBS. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. But very often, one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forth than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written, and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking, because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's a, the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. On May 3rd of 1975, he had a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. A second heart attack two weeks later puts him in the hospital for open-heart surgery. After 10 hours on the operating table, 
Serling suffered a third heart attack and died two days later. He was 50 years old. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. Very often when you write for a living, you run across blocks, moments when you can't think of the right thing to say. Now happily, there are no blocks to get in the way of the full pleasure of Chesterfield. Great tobaccos make it a wonderful smoke. Try them, they satisfy. Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And it's just so interesting to hear from the artists themselves and to hear, well, to hear him talk about his World War II experience. And before there was PTSD diagnoses, they called it shell shock, but nobody came back for therapy. I mean, you just, you basically had to suck it up. And he channeled all that, well, well, all that nightmarish uh, activity that he'd witnessed and all the nightmares he experienced after into creativity and channeled it into this remarkable art. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. I mean, uh, my favorite of the recent past months, we get to hear from Orson Welles himself talking about his life, his creative life, mistakes made, uh, ambitions. Again, this is what we do here every day on Our American Stories from their voices to your ears, we try to stay out of the way and we try to just keep it as real as possible, as authentic as possible. And these American stories, well, they come from every possible type of American. And this was one of the most creative Americans. And by the way, that he had to sell his franchise back to CBS. The very people who probably were skeptical about his work in the first place. My goodness, that just hurt me to hear personally. This is Lee Habib, Rod Serling's story, The Twilight Zone story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and this next one, well, I think you're going to love it. Between 1896 and 1899, the stampede to Dawson City in the Yukon was the last great gold rush in history. Scurvy, dysentery, frostbite, starvation, and worst of all, failure, stalked all who dared to arrive in Dawson. Here to tell the story of one of the bravest and most successful entrepreneurs of the Klondike gold rush is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. No woman figured more prominently on the Yukon and Alaskan frontiers than Belinda Mulroney. She gained international fame as the richest woman in the Klondike, and made and lost more than one fortune. She became a character in novels and her dog the inspiration for Buck in The Call of the Wild. Linda Mulroney is born in Ireland in 1872. 
but she's reared partly in Pennsylvania when her father leaves Ireland to work in Scranton's coal mines. Here's Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. Belinda's early years in Ireland have a big effect on her personality. She doesn't know her father, John, because he leaves for America shortly after she's born. Then, after two years of bonding with her mother, Mary, Mary disappears too. Belinda is left in the care of her loving grandparents on the farm in Ireland, and she does have some young, rough-and-tumble uncle playmates who help her learn to stand up for herself and not whine. But losing her mother is traumatic. Who can she really trust? Who can she really love? This will be an issue the rest of her life. As a child, she turns to her trusty donkey. She calls him her twin because he was born on the same day she was. When Belinda is almost 13 years old, her parents send for her to come to America. She says, leaving my uncles was bad. Leaving my grandmother was worse. But leaving the donkey, I threw my arms around his neck and I cried and cried for hours after I left him. Belinda leaves home in 1893 to open a small restaurant at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Before the exposition closes, she has accumulated $8,000 in profits, something like a quarter million in today's money. Mulrooney's next stop is California, where she opens an ice cream parlor in San Francisco. The money is rolling in again, but a fire destroys the parlor and leaves her broke. She ships aboard a coastal steamer, city of Topeka, as a stewardess. She quickly gains a reputation for resourcefulness, business acumen, quick wit, and spirit. When a snobbish passenger condescendingly tells her to black his boots, she tells him if she sees his boots outside his cabin door, she will throw a pitcher of water on them. When a baby has to be delivered, she does the job while the ship's captain stands discreetly outside the cabin door and reads instructions from a medical text. The captain is so impressed by Mulrooney, he soon puts her in charge of purchasing supplies for the ship. For her extra duties, she receives a 10% commission on the cost of the supplies. But so canny is Belinda that the captain still reckons he gets a bargain. When news of the gold strike in the Klondike region of the Yukon reaches the Alaskan coast during the spring of 1897, Mulrooney has saved $5,000. She says goodbye to the captain and uses her money to buy all the cotton goods and hot water bottles she can find. With the help of hired hands, she packs her goods from the port of Dyee over a treacherous Chilkoot Pass and then floats on a raft hundreds of miles down the Yukon River to Dawson a mining camp that is fast becoming the great boomtown of the far north. Stepping ashore, Mulrooney throws the last coin in her pocket into the river and exclaims, never again will I need such small change. She's right. She sells her cotton goods and hot water bottles on Dawson's Main Street at a 600% profit. Here's Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, striking it rich in the Klondike. In her packing, she has these long aluminum tubes, and she won't tell anybody what's in them. 
she gets to Dawson. Within six weeks, she has a restaurant going. She is supplying men with outfits and she has a construction business going. Because what was in those aluminum tubes was incredibly wonderful silk underwear, lingerie, night dresses. And she knew that there were women in Dawson and she could sell this stuff to them at a huge profit. She opens a diner that's crowded with men daily and builds cabins that are sold before they are finished. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda reaches Dawson in the early summer of 1897 when she's 25 years old. She's been clever enough to get there before most of the stampede of gold seekers, but she knows they're coming. So she explains, I started buying up all the small boats and rafts that were arriving, hired a crew of young fellows who had nothing to do. They took apart the boats, salvaging the lumber and nails. I had them build cabins. I wasn't thinking of the money I'd make. We just had to shoulder those people. But of course, Belinda does make money from those cabins, and even old-timers who've been mining in the Klondike for a while end up wanting a cabin for when they come into town. One old-timer, Swiftwater Bill Gates, comes into Dawson with a load of gold. He's so eager to buy one of Belinda's cabins, he pays $6,500 for it. In today's money, that's like $117,000. Mulroney takes another gamble and opens a hotel and store in the heart of the mines, where El Dorado Creek pours into Bonanza Creek. Here again is Charlotte Gray. It's the city of whiskey, women, and gold. Everything was paid for in nuggets and gold flakes, and every commercial establishment had a set of scales on its uh, counter. By the fall of 97, her Grand Forks Hotel is open. Prices for meal and lodging, and for whiskey and cigars, are the highest in the Yukon. No matter. Sourdoughs throw gold nuggets onto the Grand Forks bar. Mulroney is also in a location to get the first word on every new claim. By winter, she's an investor in several valuable mining properties. Putting a hotel 15 miles from Dawson at the junction of Bonanza and El Dorado Creeks, the Forks, isn't everybody's notion of a good idea. One old timer explains, boys, there's a new woman up to the Forks with a bit of an Irish brogue and the tongue of a lawyer that's going to show us old mossbacks how to get rich. Hanged if she ain't got so much money to lose that she's gonna build a two-story hotel bigger than any in Dawson, right up here on the creeks. But that's Belinda's genius. She can see possibilities where others see only muck. And she has great energy and self-confidence, even when only 25 years old. She builds the Grand Forks Hotel using construction skills she learned at the Chicago World's Fair five years earlier. And the Grand Forks Hotel is a huge success, not only as a hotel, but also as a restaurant, a bank, and a social center during the long, bitterly cold nights of the Yukon winter. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Belinda Mulrooney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike. And by the way, to hear more of Roger McGrath's work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. 
My goodness, he's done a dozen or so more of these terrific frontier stories. America not reimagined, but America's story simply retold. Our American Stories continues after these commercial messages. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we return to Roger McGrath and the story of Klondike Gold Strike Queen Belinda Mulrooney. When a boat loaded with supplies is wrecked on a sandbar in the Yukon River, Belinda goes into partnership with Alex MacDonald to salvage the cargo. Big Alex stands over six foot seven and weighs nearly 300 pounds. He began his stay in the far north as a laborer and worked his way up to managing an Alaskan trading company. Through the acquisition of one mine after another, he is becoming a multimillionaire. He will soon be known as the king of the Klondike. Mulroney and MacDonald have a crew salvage the cargo, but MacDonald has the goods divided before Mulroney arrives. MacDonald takes crates full of foodstuffs for himself and leaves cases of whiskey and boxes of rubber boots for Mulroney. With winter approaching and starvation a real possibility, foodstuffs will be at a premium. You'll pay through the nose for this, Belinda tells Big Alex. Here again is Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. You can understand Belinda's relation to Alex MacDonald if you think of her rough and tumble days with her uncles in Ireland. They like each other, but they're competitive, very competitive. Their so-called practical jokes are tricks where the jokester sets up the other person to be duped. But Belinda is determined to not be anybody's victim. Early in the spring of 1898, there is an unusual heat wave causing a sudden thaw. The rapidly melting snow and ice floods the Klondike country. Work in the mines is impossible without rubber boots. None other than Big Alex arrives at Mulroney's pleading for rubber boots for his men. Belinda sells the boots all right, but makes him pay $30 a pair, the equivalent of $900 in today's money. Mulroney uses the profits to build the Fairview Hotel on Dawson's Main Street during the spring and summer. Nearly everything that goes into the Fairview has to be freighted from the Port of Skagway. Belinda makes the long and dangerous journey to the Alaskan coast to personally supervise the operation. She arrives there only to learn that Joe Brooks, the packer she has hired, has moved her goods just two miles up the trail before dumping the cargo when getting a better offer to transport whiskey for Bill McPhee. Joe Brooks is now about to learn what Big Alex learned. Don't cross Belinda Mulrooney. Belinda marches to the Skagway Wharves and hires the roughest men she can find. Legends as she instigates a fight among them and makes the last man standing her foreman. Whether that's true, she's soon leading 
these men up the trail. I catch up with Joe Brooks and his crew and beat him and his men into submission. Belinda mounts Joe Brooks' own horse and leads the pack train over White Pass and down to boats waiting on the Yukon. The Fairview Hotel opens by the end of summer 1898. It's the most elegant hotel in the far north. It has 22 steam-heated rooms, electric lights, Turkish steam baths, and dining tables spread with fine linen and set with sterling silver and bone china. Cut-glass chandeliers hang from the ceilings, and an orchestra plays in the lobby. The Fairview is a cash cow from the day it opens. During its first 24 hours of operation, the bar alone takes in $6,000, something like $180,000 today. By the fall of 98, Belinda is known internationally. Scribner's Magazine calls her the richest woman of the Klondike. And others christen her the Queen of Grand Forks. She becomes a character in the novels of James Oliver Curwood and her dog, Nero, becomes immortalized as Buck in Jack London's The Call of the Wild. Here again is Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, striking it rich in the Klondike. Jack London went up there. He was an unpublished writer. His gold was all the stories he'd picked up in the bars. And two years after he got out of the North, he was the best paid, best known short story writer in North America. They're great stories. And so they really just light people's imagination up. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda St. Bernard Nero is just a big pup when she adopts him in Dawson, and he immediately captures her heart. He grows to be as big as she is, and Nero goes everywhere with Belinda, on the trails, into her cabins or hotel, onto boats. When there's snow on the ground, he proudly pulls her in a sleigh basket. He is her best friend. One day during the spring thaw, they're coming back to Dawson loaded with gold taken in at the Grand Forks Hotel. Belinda has a heavy backpack of it. Nero carries two bags of gold across his back, like a saddle. They come to a place where they have to cross Bonanza Creek on a log, so Belinda goes first. But when Nero tries to follow, he slips and falls into the icy rushing water. His load of gold is so heavy he sinks to the bottom, he can't swim can only sometimes bob his head out of the freezing water for a gasp of air. Holding onto the tree with one hand, with the other she manages to grab Nero's collar on one of his bobs for air. But now they're in a dangerous fix. The tree is swaying. Belinda can't lift Nero out. He's too big and the gold makes him even heavier. All she can do is keep his head above the water and hope that she could keep hanging onto the tree. Eventually, some miners come along. One miner starts to climb out on the tree with Belinda in an attempt to reach Nero, but then the tree abruptly sags. Both Belinda and the miner are dumped into the water with Nero. Eventually, with everyone hauling and pushing, Nero, Belinda, and the helpful miner are rescued. Once his packs are off, Nero shakes off the excess water and is set to go again. Belinda, of course, is soaked, and with no dry clothes on hand, she has a very cold hike into Dawson. Yes, 
Nero is Belinda's best friend in the Klondike. Even decades later, in 1962, when interviewed on her 90th birthday, tears come to Belinda's eyes when she remembers her faithful, beloved Nero. In 1900, Belinda Mulroney marries Charles Eugene Charbonneau, purportedly a French count with estates in Europe. He is bold, dashing, and handsome, but French-Canadian rather than French, and no count of any kind. Before Belinda learns the truth, the couple honeymoons in Europe as the Count and Countess. Upon their return to the Klondike, Belinda becomes the manager of the Gold Run Mining Company. When she takes control of the company, it's bleeding red. Within 18 months, she has it making millions again. Her husband, meanwhile, is losing millions of Belinda's money in European business ventures. She divorces him in 1906. Through hard work and daring gambles, Belinda recovers much of her fortune. One of her new businesses is the Dome City Bank of Alaska. When an investor accuses one of Belinda's sisters of embezzling money from the bank, Belinda collars the man and horsewhips him until, in the words of the Fairbanks Times, he cried like a baby. Embarrassed, the man later claims Belinda had two men help her. I needed no help, she replies. Twenty friends, all old sourdoughs of Alaska, begged to be allowed to take the work off my hands. But it was a family affair, and I attended to it to the best of my ability. A blackmailer simply received a little Alaska justice. Sue Taylor, a woman who plays the role of Belinda Mulroney for visiting tourists at the Palace Grand Theater in Dawson City, shares what brought her to the area and explains why people are still drawn to Dawson to this very day. Belinda Mulroney was, she was a fabulous character and I feel very honored to play her. Every time they told her she couldn't do something, she went and did it even bigger and better than they said she couldn't do. And uh, that's the spirit that's still here. Oh, you bet. So I came up here and thought I'd see what happened and moved into a tent. Town was full of mud. Bought a brand new pair of rubber boots and that was my first day. Walked down to the Westminster Hotel. The boyfriend, he stayed outside. He was afraid to go in. I went inside with my bright shiny boots on and these big hairy guys took one look at my boots, picked me up by my boots, shook me until I fell out of it. Then they poured the jug of beer into the gumboot and they passed it all around. And when it got to me, I had a drink too, and, and I guess I was just accepted. I liked it fine. Uh, my boyfriend never did come in. He left town very quickly. But I stayed. It's just this place has a calling for people who just want to do, be themselves and be who they want to be, be who they are. Belinda Mulroney eventually leaves the far north and builds a grand estate near Yakima, Washington. It becomes known as the Charbonneau Castle and is today a historical landmark. She lives there until shortly before her death at the age of 95 in 1967, making her the last of the legends of the Klondike Gold Rush to die. And what a story. Great job as always by Greg Hengler. And thanks as always to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And so much of his work, all of his work, can be heard at Our American Network. Org. Also, a special thanks to Melanie Meyer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney. And we rely on so many different historians and experts to do our storytelling. And thanks to all of you for helping 
Belinda Mulroney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike, here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. our American story, some of our very favorite stories have come from authors, folks who've spent years or often a lifetime studying or living a topic. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear author Neil Gabler's talk about Barbara Streisand, his terrific book about her life, a Brooklyn lady, by the way. Terry Teachout, his remarkable piece on Louis Armstrong and his book on Louis Armstrong. We did that in celebration of Armstrong's life. And Richard Zack's terrific new book on Mark Twain and how he lost all of his money and got some of it back, and then lost it all over again. And today we have a very special author joining us, one who has lived a life worthy of several books. For 18 years, Charles Campisi was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else, and as you can imagine, the man has some stories. He is the author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, and he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Charles. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, before we get into the book, we like to start things where we always start them here in Our American Stories with where you were born, your parents, and what you did as a kid that led you to be a cop and a cop that ultimately chased bad cops. Um, what led you to become the man you were, decisions and forces in your life when you were young? Well, really, it starts off when I was about five years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my parents were also born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Italy you know, back in the 1890s. And at that time, I had an aunt who lived two doorways away from the old 83rd precinct, which was on Wilson Avenue in, uh, in Brooklyn. And as a kid, five years old, we visited. I would be there, and I would be uh, playing in the streets, as we did back then in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. And I got to meet and talk to and admire some of the police officers that worked basically right next door. And they were very nice people. They were people that I wanted to emulate. Uh, they would talk to me. As a matter of fact, one officer, an officer, by, his name was Mike. I don't know his last name. I don't think I ever did know his last name. Would let me walk down the street with him. There was even a time he put his police hat on my head and said, come on, you're with me, partner. And it was a great experience. And from that very early age, I knew I wanted to be like them. I knew I wanted to be someone who was counted on to help and someone who would be uh, available when people needed them. And that's really how it all starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us. You know, how uh, we behave as adults in our professions can actually impact whether young people choose that profession. And what a great illustration of that, uh, Charles. But if you had had a different experience with a police officer or two, you may have had a fundamentally different life. Absolutely. I might have taken an entirely different path. It's so true. And then talk about Brooklyn at the time, during your formative years, and talk about this place, Brooklyn. It's one of the more remarkable parts of New York City. It's the biggest borough. It has the most population. And everybody who goes to New York City always goes to Manhattan. But I've always submitted the most interesting parts of New York are in, in the boroughs where the folks live who actually 
service and take care of that big island called Manhattan Island. Talk about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn was a great place to grow up. Uh, we lived in a multicultural neighborhood. We all got along. There were people on my, on my block where I lived from all over the world, immigrant families, uh, new people coming into the country. And we were all friends. We all played, and we could play in the street. There was no worries about uh, having a child on the street alone. And we played all the games that, that kids played in the mid-50s and, and early 60s. We played stickball in the middle of the street, and we used to use the sewers as different bases, uh, home plate, second base. Uh, we played stoop ball. We played all the things that, that, that Brooklyn basically came to be known for. And it was a wonderful place to grow up. We had the Dodgers. We had uh, everything you could want was there in Brooklyn. You know, it's a ma- remarkable. As Barbara Streisand grew up in Brooklyn, as you know. Yes. And, and so did Neil Diamond. But what people didn't know until I did that book was that Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were at Erasmus High School at the exact same time, in the exact same class. That's didn't, crazy. didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, because that's how big Erasmus High School is. And by the way, Brooklyn has a population of what, Charles? You know, four million people? Yes, and a matter of fact, there was a, a television show uh, called Welcome Back, Carter that portrayed Brooklyn as the third largest city in America if it was taken out of, uh, out of the Manhattan, out of the New York City five boroughs. It would be the third largest city in America. And I remember some of the cities, especially Philadelphia, not quite liking that. But, right. uh, yes, it's a big place, and it could be one of the largest cities in America. Indeed, and I've always told friends I grew up in northern Jersey, and that was back in the day when your parents would let you take your bicycle, go over the George Washington Bridge, strap your bike to a pole, get on a subway, and go anywhere you want, just be back by the time the sun sets. And a group of us would go out, and we would actually take trains all the way to Coney Island. And I had one friend who grew up in Brooklyn, and he had us bicycle from the Brooklyn Bridge straight down Ocean Parkway, all the way to Coney Island, and stopping all the way for all the different neighborhoods, from the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods all the way to Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, which is all Russian. And it's truly a miracle, Brooklyn. I I urge all people who are listening, take an extra day or two when you go to New York City and get out of the city and go see the boroughs and go see life as it's lived outside of that, that big, that big, big uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, Charles, so you, 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 you grow up, you come out, you go out of high school. Talk about your formative and early years uh, at the New York City Police Department. Okay, I've, I joined the police department. I'm selected in 1973. It was a long process because while I was in high school, I had applied to become a police officer. And you go through a variety of uh, testing, uh, physical testing, medical testing, psychological testing, background. And when I left high school, I entered college. And, again, I went to college in Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, downtown Brooklyn, right yep. in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, basically it was a, a tough process to become a police officer. So when I first get there, uh, you go going through the academy. Academy is very, you know, very rigorous. Uh, physical training, which wasn't a problem for me at the time, you know, 21 years old, uh, you know, playing all kinds of sports. I mean, I love sports. I, I never was really any good in any of the sports, but I love to play, and that was all that was important, that I, I got a chance to play. And uh, going into the police department, we were coming in right after the NAP Commission. NAP Commission was, uh, people might remember from Frank Serpico, he was the impetus behind the NAP Commission and, and his testimony and uh, his courage to come forward and try to stop corruption is uh, 
uh, well documented not only in books but you know Al Pacino played him in the in the movie so uh, you know Charles hold that thought for a second we're going to come in after a commercial break and pick it up after the Serpico uh, moment because it's such a critical moment in the life of the New York City Police Department this is Lee Habib this is Our American Stories Charles Campisi author of Blue on Blue an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops more of Charles's story here on Our American Stories This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, we were just talking about, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie Serpico, uh, which stars Al Pacino, it's a very young Al Pacino, by the way, and it was a book that spawned this thing called the Knapp Commission, which if you lived in the New York area, and even if you didn't, but studied law enforcement, it was one of the seminal sea changes in how to think about, you know, thinking about corruption in large city police departments in particular. Um, talk about that moment in the history of the NYPD, particularly as this film really got out there, because it had to change the perception of what people thought the average cop was up to day to day. Well, you're absolutely right, because what we found in uh, from the Knapp Commission, from uh, from Frank Serpico's story and then from the uh, uh, the movie was that corruption was very systemic in the New York City Police Department. By that, I mean it flowed from the lowest levels all the way up to the top echelon of the police department. And it flowed horizontally. It flowed v- vertically. It seemed that everybody, and it really wasn't everybody, but they made it seem like everybody had their hand in the till. But I have to tell you that it was probably most of the people who had their hand in the till. And although when Knapp was finished with his investigation, he could only prove criminality on uh, the highest rank he was able to prove criminality was at the lieutenant's rank. But there was so much evidence that showed it went much, much higher to, uh, to the other ranks within the police department. So when the Knapp Commission finishes their investigation, and Serpico's story is, is well told, uh, major changes within the police department. They moved people and dismissed people and fired people and at the some of the lower levels arrested people and moved them out of the police department. So they changed the police department completely. Now, I'm entering the police department during this, uh, this change where you saw, you know, chiefs and inspectors, they're high-level people being forced out, being forced to retire, some of them being fired, some of them being prosecuted. Um, so it really changes everything. And systemic corruption, based upon the NAP Commission results, basically doesn't exist anymore in the police department of the NYPD. And we can thank Frank Serpico and the NAP Commission for that. So what they do is they put in place a division. They call it the Internal Affairs Division, and their job is to root out corruption. And what they do is very, very good at stopping this systemic corruption. But they remain stagnant over the years. They don't grow. See, corrupt people and corruption will find a way. It's like water. It'll find its own level. Yep. 
And what the old Internal Affairs Division didn't do was grow, was didn't learn from, uh, from their mistakes, did not uh, adapt to changing corruption patterns, and a new type of corruption that we termed opportunistic corruption was allowed to grow and grow. Now, opportunistic corruption comes at a time when the crack epidemic is flourishing throughout all major cities, especially New York. And now we have something new that they didn't necessarily have uh, pre-NAP days. Pre-NAP was mostly gambling, was mostly prostitution, the vices. Yep. They were uh, profiting from looking the other way, not necessarily participating in the action, but allowing it to flourish. Now this new corruption where they're taking advantage of situations, taking advantage of the large sums of money available through uh, narcotics and narcotics enforcement uh, becomes much more difficult to, to uh, detect using the old methods. And the old IAD did not grow. They did not evolve while corruption mutated. Well, and that's the story of any company, any life, any church, any organization. Good people just can't manage in their own minds to wrap their heads around how an evil person will do anything, avoid anything to just do bad stuff. So it's no easy job to be uh, running or working with internal affairs for that reason alone. But also, when you first joined internal affairs and you were the chief of the NYPD's Eternal Affairs Bureau as, as we ended. You, what was it like then when you first started? What, what did the cops think of internal affairs? I mean, we get that uh, opinion from TV shows that people think that the guys in internal affairs are bad guys because they're going after cops. But I would, I would guess that good cops were rooting for internal affairs to get the bad cops out of their midst. Well, in the, in the very beginning, when we first started... We looked at the Internal Affairs Division, and we, we wanted to find out what was the opinion of uh, who was the Internal Affairs investigator that the cops identified with. And we did focus groups, and we brought in oh, a couple of hundred police officers, all different ranks, all different assignments, uh, all different levels, they, you know, young officers, more senior officers. And we asked them, who is the typical Internal Affairs investigator, and what do they do? Now, their opinions their beliefs, whether it's true or not, is what they believed, is that was reality to them. And their opinion was that if you were in internal affairs back then, when I first started in internal affairs, 1993, that you were one of three people. You were either a coward because you were afraid to be a real cop and you went and hid in internal affairs rather than be on the street and be on patrol. Number two, you were a thief. You were a rat. You got caught dirty. And in exchange for some type of leniency, you agreed to go to internal affairs and rat out other cops. Or you were a zealot, someone who thinks they're going to change the world uh, by their mere presence, by their mere force of will, the world will be a better place. Now, again, I don't know if that was true or not, but that was their belief. And that was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. Because my own experience with the internal affairs was not very positive. Now that, again, we're talking about the old Internal Affairs Division. And it's something I call the great Christmas tree caper of 1978, where I was involved in an incident where there was a major demonstration down by City Hall. And I had recovered through a cab driver, a briefcase belonging to a businesswoman. 
and we did everything we needed to do. We properly vouched it. We we uh, notified the, the woman to come pick up her bag. We did everything we needed to do. It was done under supervision, and uh, it was textbook because at the time I was studying hard for the sergeant's exam, and I kind of knew the procedures as well as I, I ever would know them. So a couple of, this is just before Christmas. So about a week after Christmas, I get a notice to report to the old internal affairs division and bring my notes and my memo book, as we called it, uh, for a certain date. So I looked at that date, and I saw that that was the day that I recovered the, uh, the briefcase. There was no money in it. There was a credit card in it. But, you know, papers, no, business papers that were valuable to the company and valuable to the woman, obviously. So they asked me. Uh, point blank, did I steal a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that was a couple of miles away? And I said, no, I never stole a Christmas tree, and I can prove my location. They didn't want to hear it. They were very quick, okay, we're just going to dismiss you, you go away, and this is going to stay on your record, that you were accused of stealing a Christmas tree. And it wasn't just me. There was uh, numerous officers. Uh, we were all riding three-wheel scooters at the time, and they couldn't get the full number because the Christmas tree branch was obscuring part of it. So anybody who was working that day in the vicinity was called down to the old Internal Affairs Division. And I argued with them, proving that I was nowhere near the location, and I had two supervisors who could verify that I was miles away, and they just didn't care. They were just quick, and I want to close the case, go away, you know, and that's the impression you get. These guys aren't good investigators. These guys aren't here to help me. These guys are just here to, you know, do their job and quick go home at the end of the night and not worry about anybody else. So coming in with that understanding that they weren't here to help me, they were here just to be expeditious. Uh, and knowing that the general impression is that they're cowards and thieves and zealots, we had to change that image. We had to change that perspective. So the only way to do that is no longer allow anybody to volunteer to come into internal affairs. I certainly didn't volunteer to go. I was drafted by then Commissioner Kelly, who said to me, we're having problems, because there was a new commission that came in 20 years later, the Marlin Commission, yep. that had to do with a man named Michael Dowd. And people in the press uh, had Michael Dowd labeled as the dirtiest cop alive. And Michael was stealing drugs and beating people and stealing money and, and even doing it off-duty, coming in on his days off because he could make lots of money. Yep. And the old IAD, with their old tactics, let Michael go on for six, seven, possibly eight years doing what he was doing, and they never got a chance to catch him because they weren't doing it right. So coming to, with that in my background, we said no more volunteers into internal affairs. We have to select people, we have to draft people, and we have to draft the people who are the most knowledgeable, the best investigators, the people with pristine records, the people with good reputations, the people the other cops admire, the other cops look up to. And that's so smart, Charles, and you changed the culture overnight. We're talking to Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And going away with this volunteer system and making it be that the only way you can get in internal affairs was to be chosen, I would assume almost overnight this changes the nature and character of internal affairs itself, Charles. Well, it helped so much because within a short period of time, we started to do additional focus groups, you know, different people, but the same uh, basic backgrounds, cops from all different ranks and all. And amazingly, they weren't telling us about cowards and thieves and zealots. They were talking about, you took our best sergeant, you took our best lieutenant, you know, she was the best boss we ever had, and you stole her from us. And it no longer was thieves and, and cowards. It was the best people go to IAB. That's not fair. They shouldn't go to IAB. They should be allowed to stay where they are. But IAB being such an important part of policing, and I used to tell my, my peers and my supervisors, you know, crime reduction in New York is great. We're, we're breaking all records. But I'll tell you, we have another big scandal, and all our, our, our accolades have gone down the drain. Yep. We have to prove to the people that we could police ourselves. We can prove to the people that we're going to get rid of those bad cops. And what we found over our years is the overwhelming majority of cops, men and women, hardworking, dedicated people, come to work, do a very difficult job. But there's that small percentage, that half a percent, if you would, maybe one percent, that will steal the headlines every day away from the good cops. And in the New York City Police Department, where you have over 50,000 employees, 37,000 sworn officers, traffic agents, school safety agents, uh, assorted staff and computer analysts, that 50,000 people, if you're looking at 1%, you're looking at 500 people that you've got to worry about. And so that 1%, I think this is another point that I think is worth illustrating, is if you got 1%, then you've got quite a number of people out there doing bad things. But it's how long they can do bad things and to how many people. I, I had a lot of experience in Newark. I played a lot of basketball there. I had some friends there. And there was one cop that everybody knew was bad and everybody was afraid of for good reason. And he carried on on the streets for a decade without recourse till he was finally cuffed and stuffed but that what the harm he did because everybody assumed everybody knew but but everybody didn't know it it turns out he was a rogue guy who just he got away with things for far too long and the impact and the damage it did to the opinion of people on the street as it relates to the newark police department i say it, it they for people who encountered that guy they still haven't recovered charles I agree with you, absolutely, that one person can affect the image of the entire force because that's the one that's going to be the, the most cognizant in your mind, and that's the one when he or she gets caught, makes the front page. And all the good that you've done gets washed away with that corruption scandal. Yep, and let's talk about a story I remember from back uh, when you were there, and that's the Abner Lawima case. And this is a difficult, difficult story. Take your time, walk us through it. Okay, that's one of the most horrific stories in the annals of policing anywhere. And it all starts on a Saturday night in Brooklyn in uh, a club called Club Rendezvous. There's a big party, mostly Haitian Americans attending this party, many Haitian Americans living in the community. There's a big fight that erupts inside the party. It spills out into the street. 
the police are called, and the police send everybody on their way. There were no arrests made at that time. And while they're breaking up this large disturbance, there's a police officer named Justin Volpe who's standing in front of Club Rendezvous, and a man runs by and sucker punches Justin, knocks him to the ground, and runs away. Justin is now infuriated, and he gets in the car with other officers, and they start to look for the man who sucker punched Justin. They spot Mr. Abner Luima, who is not the man who punched Justin, but they believe it's him. They grab him, they arrest him, they handcuff him, they put him in the back of a police car, and they beat him up. They hit him several times as they're driving from the scene back to the 70th precinct, 70 precinct in, uh, in Brooklyn. As they're taking him, two or three times they stop, they punch him, they smack him, they hit him. Uh, they then bring him into the station house. They bring him before the desk officer and they explain that this man sucker punched Justin Volpe. We take his belt away, his shoelaces, and the things they normally would do so when they put him in a cell, he can't hurt himself. But they do something different. They start to walk him back to where the cell area is so that they can start the booking process. As they're walking him, because his, his pants were kind of baggy, they didn't fit well, uh, and they had taken his belt, his pants start to fall down to his ankles. And he's kind of shuffling now, more like a duck walk. And there are officers who are working there. Now, this is on a midnight tour. Uh, so it happened someplace about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They see him being walked back, Mr. Louima, they see him being walked back to the cell area, and nobody thinks much of it. The cell area is to the left of the hallway, but they don't take Mr. Louima to the cell area. They take him to the right, which is a, a, a bathroom that's used by the officers. It's not a public bathroom. It's an a, 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 a office bathroom. So they take him in the bathroom, and then they proceed to beat him again. One officer is in there is beating him again, Justin Volpe. Then, for whatever reason, and this is where my mind can't, can't grasp this, he takes a broomstick, and Justin Volpe breaks the broomstick, and then he rams it into the rectum of Mr. Luima. I can't imagine the pain that this man went through. Uh, a second officer is reported to have entered the bathroom, while Justin is doing this to Mr. Luima, he then, is, he then stops after a period of time. He takes Mr. Luima, puts him in the cell, and he waves the stick with feces and blood and, and who knows what. He's waving it around uh, as a prize, as a, some sort of trophy. In the meantime, Mr. Luima is in the cell in excruciating pain. The next morning when the next tour comes on, Mr. Luima is very, very sick. He's in pain. They decide, the new officers decide, wait, this man's sick. We've got to get him to a hospital. And they take him to Coney Island Hospital, where he tells a nurse about being sodomized with a stick by these police officers. What the nurse does is she makes a mistake, and then the Internal Affairs Bureau, my investigator, compounds that mistake. She calls Internal Affairs. And she tells Internal Affairs her husband was assaulted. Now, the officer who takes the call, I mean, talk about bad luck for, for all of us, it's his first day at the command center taking phone calls, very first day. He makes a rookie mistake. Well, he is a rookie. When she cannot pronounce Mr. Luima's name, uh, 
and she mispronounces it two or three times. He says to her, lady, this your husband? Don't you know his name? Can't you pronounce it? Could you spell it for us? And she says, but she didn't want to really get involved. She wanted to just pass off the information. She says, let me call you back. And then here's where, where my investigator makes the mistake. He says, okay, lady, call me back. You never let the person off the phone. Right. You get as much information as you can. You start a preliminary investigation. You notify your supervisors. You do all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. So a little later in the day, we could have had we could have been involved in the case a little earlier if he would have handled the call right. Now, naturally, hold on, Charles, hold that thought right there because we're coming up upon a break. And we want to hear the rest, rest of this story, the Abner Louima story, as horrifying a story as there was in the history of the New York Police Department and the man who was in charge of internal affairs or was working at internal affairs at the time, Charles Campisi, his book, Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More after these messages. Our American Stories, we continue our final segment in this hour-long conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And we were talking about the Abner Louima case and the unfortunate luck of internal affairs getting the call and a rookie answering that call. And what he did, not getting that person's information, letting that call disappear was something, again, that someone more trained, Charles, wouldn't have done. But this was really bad news for internal affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably, I was there in internal affairs for 21 years, the chief for 17 and a half years. This was the worst mistake you could make under the worst case that there could be. And so what happens next? Uh, how does the media get a hold of this? How do okay, people that, find that, out, that, and what happens? That's, that's an excellent point, because the media doesn't get a hold of this until Wednesday. Now, this is a Sunday morning when we get the phone call, and they drop the call. We get a second call about a man being in the hospital, injured, seriously injured. That call, a couple of hours later, is handled absolutely correctly. We, get a, we dispatch investigative teams to the hospital. We send a team to the 7-0 precinct to secure it and, uh, and freeze the, the bathroom. We send people to Club Rendezvous to try to get as much information as possible. And our investigation is off and running on Sunday, Sunday night. Monday morning, I get all this information. Number one, they, they called me at home to tell me all this information. And I said to them, you have the resources you need. What else can I send you? What could I give you? And we're off and running. I get to the police commissioner. His name was Howard Safer at the time. I get to him first thing Monday morning. 
and I start to lay out our investigation for him. And he's looking at me saying, do you believe this really happened? Because nobody wanted to believe that a man would do this to another man. A human being would do this to another human being. And worst of all, a cop would do this to another human being. And then the compound that it happened in a police station. And people didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but the evidence was so overwhelming. So by Monday morning, we've identified who, worked, who was working that night. We brought photo arrays to the hospital. We had Mr. Luima pick out the officers that were there, who hit him, who put him in the car. We, we had this investigation in full steam by Monday afternoon. And Monday afternoon, uh, I'm called down to City Hall to brief the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. And I brief him on the case, and I'm giving him the facts and the circumstances. And as the true prosecutor he was, you got to remember, Rudy Giuliani was the United States attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York. He's asking pertinent questions. And I have to be, be honest, we had the answers because our investigation was solid up to that point. We were working with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And the press doesn't get this until Wednesday, and they start asking questions. Now, naturally, the nature of internal affairs work, I can't reveal my investigation to them. So they keep saying, well, what are you doing, police department? What are you doing, internal affairs? And I said to them, don't worry, it's under investigation. But they wanted more. They wanted names and dates and facts and figures, which I could not give them because I'm working with prosecutors. And what prosecutor wants his or her case in the newspaper before they get a chance to bring it before a grand jury? Well, the good news is within two weeks, we had five indictments. Now, if you know the criminal justice system, to get people indicted in two weeks, to get five police officers indicted in two weeks, that's a pretty quick time period. That's, that's, a, that's a monumental task, and we did it. Well, Charles, you did it respecting the in- presumption of innocence of the cops, which we have to always respect. Uh, but, Everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Everybody. Right. And sometimes Citizens, we see, Charles, sometimes we see a prosecutor go in and get an indictment before there's any investigation. And, and that's the dynamic tension between internal affairs and the media. And the media wants, and, and the masses, well, they want a prosecution or they want an indictment immediately. They but, want an execution Well, they today. want an execution. And your job is to get to the truth. And this is why it's so important for internal affairs to have integrity for internal affairs to have the kind of people, the quality people that can protect the very brand and image of the department by so seeking out truth that they're willing to get that bad cop and prosecute him, but only if he's violated the law. And we went step by step. And I tell you what was great about this case. We always hear about the blue wall of silence. Well, in this particular case, once some of the facts became known, once the officers in the 7-0 precinct realized that this really happened, they came forward, and they provided the critical information that we needed to get the indictment in two weeks. We had an officer who started to put things together. He saw Volpe and, um, and Mr. Luima walking into the, into, towards the bathroom area. He saw Luima with a stick in his hand, and he says, wait a minute, this might have happened. He calls us and says, I have information, and I want to talk to you guys right now. Now, we're talking about you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we get a team together, and we rush the team over to, to, to him, and he starts giving us a piece of information. Then another cop comes forward with a piece of information, and our case starts to build real quickly and real solid. So the blue wall of silence, if there is such a thing, 
and I can attest that there is, but I'll talk about that in a second, it crumbles in this case because it was so horrendous that people in the precinct, other police officers, said this can't happen. We can't stand by and let this happen. So very, very encouraged by the officers coming forward in that case. And by the way, it was remarkable. The, the right things happened. Uh, people were prosecuted. They were thrown in prison like they should have. And ultimately, Abner Luina was, well, not made whole because you can't be made whole after something like this. But there were civil fines and the Luima family was compensated for their damages. I can't imagine what that man went through. And he received compensation. And Justin Volpe is serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, I believe, in Minnesota. And that's what justice looks like and needs to look like always for all. And by the way, equal justice under the law, that's the, that's the game for the cops. Equal justice for the citizens, equal justice. And let, talk about that blue wall of silence in our final minutes together. Um, because it's, it's there, uh, but how is it different than it was back in the day? Well, I'll tell you, everybody knows of, the, knows of the blue wall of silence, but my question is, what makes people think that a wall of silence exists only within the policing community, which it does, but it exists in every occupation and every group. There is, we had a case that we investigated, there was two firefighters in a fire station get into a fight. One of them hits the other with a folding chair, serious injury. The fire department, which also handles EMS, picks the man up and rushes him to the hospital. They say he fell off of a ladder while he was fixing something. They quick clean up the the crime scene. They take all the blood. They throw the chair away. They do all of this stuff. So would we call that a red wall of silence because they covered up for their own? In the medical profession, very rarely do you see doctors testifying against other doctors. And we've had cases where Doctors have botched surgeries, and the other people in the operating room never came forward. So could we call that the white wall of silence? In, in occupations, especially occupations where you rely on the other person for safety and for your very life, there tends to be a wall of silence. Is there a blue wall of silence? Yes, but it is not just in the police profession. It is in all professions. Now you'd see it in the military, too, in combat. You'd see this, by the way, when the, when, the, when the Armstrong, Lance Armstrong doping thing happened in bicycling, the doping in baseball. Well, it turned out there was a lot more of it than people cared to admit because, A, no one wanted to snitch, and, B, a lot more people were doing it than cared to admit. Absolutely. And, and these are things that happen because human beings are flawed, and that's just the nature of any occupation and, frankly, any walk of life. Our human beings are flawed. Uh, tell me one last misconception people might have about not only the life in internal affairs, but the life and the daily life of particularly a big city cop. See, cops don't come to work with, every day with the idea of hurting people. So to some people, they think that these cops, all they want to do is abuse people's rights. They want to hurt people. They're racist. They're prejudiced. Cops don't come to work to hurt people. Sometimes there are situations where, where people are injured and people are hurt. In internal affairs, internal affairs investigators are not there to hurt good cops. And that's the, the impression we get mainly because of in the movies and in television, internal affairs is always the, the outsider, the cop who is uh, uh, trying to hurt the hero or heroine from doing a, a good job. Yep. They're trying to prevent Dirty Harry from getting those bad guys off the street, and they want to stop the cops who are, who are uh, uh, dragging in the drug dealers. That's not the case. 
we, we're police officers. We're there to support good cops, to help good cops. But we're there primarily to make sure that the bad cops don't get away with it and they don't tarnish the reputation and steal the headlines away from the good cops. Well, we've been talking to Charles Campisi, who is the chief of NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, the biggest internal affairs bureau in the country, representing and doing work with and for the biggest police force in the country, with at the time, at one point in time, 41,000 cops, over 50,000 in total. And that's bigger than, well, many towns in America. And when you have that many people, you're going to have to police some of the bad guys. Charles Campisi's book, Blue on Blue, An Insider's Story of Good Cops Catching Bad Cops, is a must-read. We don't do a lot of books on our American stories, but when we do them, we know you'll love them. And Charles, thanks for the storytelling, and thanks for telling this story for all the cops, particularly the good cops, Charles, as you said the overwhelming majority that you serve. Well, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure to be, and I I hope uh, uh, we added to uh, some of the changes that we need. You bet. And thanks again. That's Charles Campisi, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. Go to Amazon.com and get it now. Charles Campisi's story here on Our American Stories.